Hello and welcome to the Village Magazine podcast, Ireland's political and cultural podcast. I'm Roisin O'Shea, and this week I'm joined by Professor John Barry of Queen's University School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. He's also chair of the Green Party in Northern Ireland and author of the blog The Marxist Lentilist. Before we begin, if you want more of this content, check out our website villagemagazine.ie where you can subscribe to our print magazine as well as our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok, where you can keep up with our latest stories. Um, so to be honest, the first thing I want to know, because um, I'm an enormous fan of the name of your block, uh, of Marxist Lentilist. So please tell me what your favourite lentil recipe is. <laughs> well, as, as a good vegan, uh, certainly anything with dal is always a, a favourite. But yes, the Marxist Lentilism is just a play on um, my politics, which is a, um, a kind of a watermelon green, green on the outside and uh, red in the middle, in terms of essentially an, an eco-socialist perspective coupled with a, a degrowth or post-growth uh, analysis, which we can surely you know, get into when we talk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, maybe we could start with, um, you know, there's a lot of terminology that go around, like, yeah, you have degrowth, you have post post-growth, you have like, socialist growth um so maybe if you want to kick us off by sort of like giving a foundation definition of what we're actually dealing with here because it is a bit nebulous sometimes sure you know most people who have either studied economics at secondary school or university or who listen to economic analysis in the media or read it in the newspapers what they're being exposed to is a very particular form of economic analysis called neoclassical uh, economics. That's the dominant form of economics that we find in teaching. It's the one that drives policy. And for the past 30 years or so, my academic uh, interest has been in debunking one particular aspect of neoclassical economics, namely its uh, fetish and its addiction to economic growth. And by that, I mean uh, GDP measurements of economic activity, usually within a calendar year. Essentially, for the uninitiated, economic growth measures the busyness of the economy, how many transactions have been recorded on the formal market system um, within a a given period. It doesn't tell us anything, and this is then the beginnings of the shift away from growth, it tells us nothing about the distribution of that growth. So theoretically, if the entire fruits of economic growth, like Irish, let's just say, for example, Irish GDP growth has increased by 7%. Well, if the entirety of that 7% growth was to go to one individual or one company, job done, according to neoclassical economics, it has no sense of the distribution of the Mm -hmm. benefits or indeed the costs of of economic growth. That's the first problem. It's distribution uh, indifferent or blind. The second one is more to do with the ecological or energy dimensions, is that all of this economic growth is consuming an awful lot of resources, energy, materials, rare earth metals, and of course then producing lots of pollution, uh, whether that be in greenhouse gas emissions or air pollution and and so on. And the reality is that uh, we have a finite planet. Uh, Last time I looked, the earth wasn't growing. Uh, and yet neoclassical economics uh, portrays this fiction, a dangerous fiction, that somehow, A, the human economy is divorced from nature. If you look at any 
standard economics textbook, you have this nice, neat uh, schematic of households and firms. There's no mention of gender inequality, no mention of class, no mention of the ecological inputs uh, of the economy. And it's simply biophysically impossible, according to the known laws of the universe, for a subsystem, which is the human economy, which is a subsystem of the larger ecosystem, the biosphere, which isn't growing. So logically, how can a subsystem grow increasingly infinitely year on year within the confines of a non-growing larger system? So that's the second problem with the conventional uh, economic growth paradigm and, and why post-growth, um, and I'll talk about degrowth in a moment, why post-growth may have more going for it in terms of distribution and also in uh, the scientific reality. A third one that's a problem with uh, orthodox uh, economic growth is that after a threshold, uh, we know because we have the evidence, certainly from Europe and North America, Australasia and Japan, most of the developed world economies, we know that after a threshold of growth, it doesn't add appreciably to human flourishing or well-being. You know, it actually begins to have negative impacts in terms of social dislocation. People actually become anxious and psychologically distressed at the amount of frantic economic activity, whether it's having more jobs to buy more stuff. Um, so the issue here is that in all that I've said so far, what I'm offering is not an anti-growth position. Growth up to a threshold is good. It lifts people out of poverty. And we can talk about the ways in which, you know, the Chinese economic miracle has lifted millions of people out, out of poverty. And similarly for, for Ireland, a lot of people have been lifted out of poverty. But in the same way, you know, physically, human beings should not grow forever. We don't. We reach a certain stage of maturation and then we, um, we have a steady state or, you know, what the biologists would call uh, homeostasis. We don't continually grow, although looking at my own tummy now, lockdown hasn't been kind to many of us at home where <laughs> parts of our bodies have been maybe expanding over, over that period. Overly capitalist. Uh, we, we can't blame everybody on capitalism uh, much <laughs> as though often I, I would like. So I wouldn't like anyone listening to think that what I'm offering here or what the post-growth position is anti-growth, that we don't need growth at all. It is saying that after a point, we have to recognize, is growth now become uneconomic growth? In other words, it's making our societies more stressed. It's not adding to human well-being. It's actually um, creating the conditions whereby we need and produce more inequality. And it's not actually making us any happier or contributing to social flourishing. And the final point I'd make, so just to recap, the first one is that it's biophysically impossible for a subsystem to increasingly grow within the confines of a smaller system. The second issue is the distributional question. That is a point beyond which growth uh, it doesn't, is indifferent to um, you know, distribution. Then there's the issue of the human flourishing. There's a point beyond which then growth is not really adding to overall human flourishing. And it's actually being captured, you could say, by a small minority. And then a fourth one, is that after a point, I would suggest that uh, an obsession, particularly in a capitalist economy such as ours or in most countries in the, in the global north in particular, that um, it begins to corrode our democracy. And I think it does this in two ways. One is that many people uh, in terms of citizens are reduced to consumers. You know, we're being encouraged to be active consumers as opposed to being active citizens. 
as a result of the dominance of this economic growth dynamic in our society and our you know active uh, compulsion or inducement to consume you know i've described consumerism uh, to use the phrase in the great film with brad pitt in it and, and edward norton fight club is buying shit you don't need to impress people you don't care about now none of that is to say that there are some people who are consuming too little in our society but it certainly is the case that there is a small minority that are far, far consuming too much. And so I would say that is a corrosive dynamic in our democracy. And then, of course, just to finish, our democracy is under threat when it's in the interest, it's the old kind of standard socialist Marxist view, that very powerful business groups in our society, a small elite, often in active collusion, as we now know, with you know, political elites, uh, they can collude, you know, um, develop policies and regulation that suits their interest, all of which I think corrupts our democracy. So there, there are four reasons I think we can offer. I'm not saying they're not contestable. People can, you know, um, reject them. And so that's fine. But they are my views after 30 years of research in this area that growth is not needed in societies such as the Republic of Ireland, most EU countries, North America, it is needed in the global South, hopefully in a, in a low carbon manner, so they don't follow the same ecocidal, unsustainable trajectory we've done. So again, I'd just like to underscore that a post-growth position, such as the one as I'm offering, is not anti-growth. Growth is good up until a point, but the biological definition of cancer is when an organism has grown outside the, the bounds of flourishing that's no longer healthy for the organism. And I would say that we are in a stage in the global north, in the minority world, we are now in the stage of cancerous growth. It's no longer adding to our society. It's actually becoming uh, uneconomic growth. It's causing more problems than it is causing solution. And therefore, what we need to do is move beyond growth into post-growth, well-being, human flourishing and concern ourselves an awful lot more with issues of distribution. Because, you know, just to go back and it's connected to the distribution question, you know, since the Second World War, arguments for economic growth uh, on the left and on the right have been used to stave off questions of, of distribution. So think about it in terms of a cake. So you may complain, well, my slice of the cake is very, very small. Well, those who propose growth as a solution say, don't worry, don't worry, next year the cake is gonna be bigger. So in absolute terms, you've got now a bigger slice of the cake. It's still proportionally smaller than it was last year or the same as last year. So to stop arguments for redistribution, arguments for growth are wheeled out. So if you're an egalitarian, as I am, if you're on the left and you want a more equal society, growth may not necessarily be the best way of achieving that. So apologies for that rather long-winded introduction, but this lays out the, the stall, mm -hmm. if you like, and maybe... Um, overcome some of the misperceptions that are out there about ideas of moving beyond growth. No, absolutely. I think um, I think that's very comprehensive, like mapping out because it is such a complex issue and it touches on so many things. You know, like it's not just like like the cost of petrol and recycling your like toilet rolls. Um, it is very complicated, and there are so many terms in it that it's good to lay that foundation. Um, I guess the initial question I would have. From that is so when we when a society or an economy is in a position of this yeah this cancerous growth this overgrowth my initial question would be how 
is how would you think is the best way of dealing with that like is it to like stop dead is there a strategic way of pairing back or is the solution yeah just immediate redistribution like how exactly like are there models that other countries have used um to sort of remap that or what do you think Uh, uh, no it's fair to say there is no empirical existing example of a country that's moved in this direction this is largely at the level of uh, theoretical model building there is some discussions in policy circles you know for example and this it may sound strange given the kind of left-wing perspective i'm coming from but there was a a commission that was uh, set up by the oecd that's the organization of economic uh, cooperation development not particularly radical organization based in in uh, in, in france and it was when we had President Sarkozy in France, David Cameron in the UK, and they proposed that there should be a commission set up. It was comprised of the Nobel Prize winning uh, economist Joseph Stiglitz, um, kind of a social democratic, not particularly radical, uh, Amir Sen, who well-known um, Indian uh, economist and a Nobel laureate, and a French uh, academic called Fatuzzi. And they, and people can go and look this up, and they basically looked at moving beyond growth. GDP growth has even been recognized now within orthodox circles that it has these, some of these problems that I have, I've mentioned. So there you have some policy discussion at a very high level of the need to move, or at least consider it moving beyond growth. I certainly think that we shouldn't um, you know, stop growth immediately it's a bit like being on a drug and there is an analogy between addiction and this imperative that we have towards growth in a capitalist society that we do need a planned retreat from growth in the same way that we need a planned retreat from fossil fuels is that we need to have a just transition to make sure that there's nobody left behind that we have policies in place that will mitigate uh, any shocks because we're talking about a a shift to a different type of economy and and society and it's one that would, just to reflect upon what Vivian has put in the, in, in the chat there as a question, it is about saying that we're going to need more what I would call socialised consumption. Part of the shift uh, or the policy portfolio of a post-growth society is, if you'll allow me the rhetorical flourish and probably overuse of alliteration, we need, to, we need to move away from the current growth model, which is based around buildings, banks and boutiques, that's basically, you know, property, property speculation, the financialization of our uh, economies. And it's, it, I would argue that finance has now got an un, unwieldy and indeed negative impact on the real economy. And boutiques, I'm just using a shorthand for consumption to get us out spending. And to replace that model, which is unsustainable, and I think it's not adding to human flourishing in the global north, with a, a shift towards an economy based around libraries, laundromats and light rail. And these are forms of, you know, meeting our needs without necessarily have to buy, buying stuff. And I think that, and that's, that's a kind of an old welfare state, social democratic perspective. And I do think we have to find more ecologically efficient, resource efficient and less unequal producing ways of meeting our needs. And when you commodify something, so you turn healthcare into a commodity or you turn you know, education into a commodity, which has sadly happened in many societies. And so it's no longer being provided at low cost or for free. And that means then that we are using an enormous amount of resources as individuals have to get the resources to buy the stuff, which of course then adds to the growth dynamic. 
So this idea of moving beyond growth, to me, and again, others absolutely can disagree, it is partly about decommodifying key aspects of the goods and services that we need to lead, to, to lead these decent lives. You know, I mentioned, you know, two there, which are central healthcare and education should not be commodities. You know, I also would think that um, there are aspects of transportation. You know, there should be a certain quantum of transportation that is free and that we can find this, we can find in examples, whether it's Luxembourg or other countries in the world that will provide at least some of their public transportation routes for free because it makes economic and ecological sense. And so we're moving in the direction now of what the Corbyn um, project in, 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 in the UK, which of course didn't get elected, we have to recognize that, but certainly the policies of that Corbyn administration um, were around what's, what's called UBS, or Universal Basic Services. So it's about the provision of you know, key aspects of our lives that we need not based on individual consumption or at least individual consumption alone. So as I mentioned, food, perhaps there should be a certain quantum of food. And you could say our social welfare system, you know, already has that built in that nobody should go hungry. What about housing? Is housing a right or a commodity? Uh, is education a right or a commodity? Transportation, uh, electricity. And that debate um, at least is beginning now. And to me, that's the direction we need to go in if we're trying to find policy proposals to deliver on this post-growth dynamic. It is about uh, sharing more, finding, as I say, forms of socialized consumption. Um, now, I do think there are certain goods and services that we cannot do like this. So I don't think underwear should be part of this deal at all. Uh, I think maybe personal, um, you know, electronic equipment. You know, there are certain things that uh, would naturally more lend themselves to private ownership and consumption. But it does seem to me that there are you know, these key goods that we need and, and services that anybody needs for a decent life that we should begin to progressively and in a planned manner, you know, decommodify them and start providing them in a much more uh, equitable and shared way. And that would include things like rationing. I mean, one of the responses we can have now to the energy crisis that we, we face is rationing. And people go, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's like wartime or, or you know, austerity. Well, the reality is, folks, we already do ration energy, just as rationed by price. Uh, rationing uh, doesn't have to be that way. We can have a little form of rationing where we're basing it on people's needs. And that's where I am a Marxist, is that you're trying to provide the goods and services that people need um, to meet their needs, you know, from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. For those you read any of the, the dead, beardy white guy from the 19th century that I'm talking about. Which one? <laughs> uh, this is Karl Marx. Uh, <laughs> No, I just mean, yeah, there's a lot of dead pretty white guys with a lot of things to say, I suppose. Um, I suppose um, an issue that I find interesting, um, which I think is slightly fraught in discussions of degrowth and post-growth and climate crisis um, uh, and energy is uh, atomic power or like the nuclear issues. I'm wondering where you stand on that versus other forms of energy production. Uh, th th this may shock people who might know me, but I am a believer in nuclear power. Pause for effect. Nuclear, <laughs> power, nuclear power from the sun. We do not need uh, nuclear power. And in fact, it does frustrate me, although it's a natural way of people uh, looking at this issue, where the energy transition is viewed in terms of we have a certain quantum 
of fossil fuels, which we know we need to move away as quickly as we can, coal, oil and gas and peace and so on. And then the proposition is, oh, we need to replace that with the same or an increased quantum of renewable energy. And I wouldn't classify nuclear power as renewable. A, it depends upon uranium. We have no dem demonstrated example of nuclear fusion, which is always promised as the next great thing. And if you were to calculate the embedded carbon in the concrete required to build nuclear power stations, its uh, image as being a low carbon energy uh, quickly becomes undone. But the point I'm making here is what about focusing, first of all, on the fact that we waste so much energy? Where is energy conservation, energy you know, uh, efficiency, even energy descent uh, where appropriate? That's where we should be going first, which for me, in the context of our current energy crisis and the cost of living crisis, the single biggest policy that we could do is to retrofit people's homes. This would reduce the amount of heating they're gonna need during the winter. And let's all hope we have a really mild winter because we're gonna you know, see people being faced with the horrible choice of heat or eat. But it also has the other advantage that given the extreme heat events we're now experiencing in the summer months, that insulating your house keeps your house cool as well. Now that's a non or a low technological solution. So for me, that is the type of policy I think we need to go for before we even get into the debate around nuclear power or even renewable energy, which, of course, I would support. It's about reducing energy use and electricity. And another example on, on, a, on a bigger scale, so that the, the, the housing retrofit will benefit individual households. But part of the problem with our current carbon-based centralised electricity system is that we have a couple of large fossil fuel generating power plants, and then long transmission lines, which waste energy. You know, renewable energy enables distributed and smart grids, whereby we're, we're not wasting energy in the, in, in the transmission. It's kind of the proximity principle where you're producing the electricity close to where people are consuming it. And these are all possible. And I'd rather see the debate on energy around those issues, rather than what often you get into these very arcane and often very inclement uh, and, and more heat and light types of debates around nuclear energy, which for me, people tend to forget that um, the nuclear energy industry globally has always been associated with nuclear weapons. Its main purpose in the 1940s and 50s was to produce weapons grade plutonium. So for me, you know, the, the idea of going for nuclear power, it's too costly, it's capital intensive, doesn't provide as many jobs as renewable energy. And it's also inextricably, in my view, tied up with nuclear weapons. Whereas mm -hmm. I think, you know, we want to try and have a, an energy transition that has as many co-benefits as possible in terms of jobs, clean air, obviously climate stability. But also remember this, that the war in Iraq in 2003 was a war for oil. You know, a, a more geopolitically unstable world is a world that is based on nuclear weapons and nuclear power or indeed fossil fuels. So another Brucey bonus of the low carbon energy transition is that I think we would create a less geopolitically unstable world, particularly in terms of energy competition. Um, so you mentioned there that, yeah, you feel like a debate around nuclear energy, for instance, is not... The, the most immediate question in policy and what we should be moving towards in terms of policy. So in reference to current policies, 
how do you feel like they are inadequate or are they on the cusp of changing and improving? Are they not? Are they going in the right direction, the wrong direction um, of what we have in place at the moment? And what we have was to be generous as baby steps in the right direction. You know, I remind people listening, if you're in Ireland or the UK, you are living in countries that both have declared climate and ecological emergencies in 2019. The UK Parliament was the first, I think it was around May, March or May in 2019, to declare a climate and ecological emergency. It was followed a week later by the Irish doll. But then I, you know, forgive my language, WTF question mark. How would any of us know that we're living in societies where the parliaments, now it's important to recognise not the governments of the day, but the parliaments, uh, they declared these emergencies. And we don't see the action commensurate with that. Now, the pandemic, that's what an emergency response looks like. You know, mm -hmm. where the furloughing of workers, the part socialising of our healthcare system, you know, obligations for, you know, limits to, you know, staying at home and wearing masks and washing our hands. That to me is, is an emergency response. So in many respects, these declarations of climate and ecological emergencies are just bullshit. They're kind of woke declarations by middle-aged, middle-class, fat, pot-bellied men, of which I am now, you know, probably sadly or proudly one. And that our citizens should really be concerned that our, our political class makes these declarations and yet then don't, doesn't deliver on them. Now, we've made some advances on this island in both jurisdictions in terms of renewable energy, you know, a little known success from the previous um, record of the Green government in, in power down south is that it got building regulations changed so that all new builds are much more energy efficient. Well, it's not going to set the world on fire. You're not going to get people out on the street. What do we want? Higher building standards. When do we want them? Now, you know, it doesn't really, you know, add to that kind of activist. But fair play to the Greens. They did get that through in their last experience of coalition government. And so there has been some, you know, benefits. But we are not seeing the scale or the urgency, the mobilization of state resources to protect people. You know, we are, this summer was not a wake-up call for people whereby, you know, we were spared probably the worst of it on this island, but you had 40 degree heat in London. Earlier on this year in India and Pakistan, we had a billion people under a heat dome that was so severe that birds were dropping out of the sky. You know, these are reaching the, the edges of human, you know, tolerability. We had floods um, up here in the north in Derry and Strabane, which thankfully didn't, you know, cause any fatalities, but destroyed lots of businesses and homes and so on. And this is our new normal. These extreme weather events then followed by monsoon type rainfall because, you know, the warmer the air is, it keeps more moisture and so on. But where are we seeing our governments preparing our populations for a different world that's never, we're going to have to adapt to this world? The reality is that, you know, even if we were to stop burning all fossil fuels now, we have baked in inevitable climate breakdown for the coming decades. Our job now is to keep it from becoming, you know, um, extreme. You know, we want to try and keep it to 1.5 degree global average heating. That's the international uh, agreement. Um, the current um, policies of, of governments around the world have us on track for about a 2.7 degree world. Now, at the moment, just to bring a home for people, all these extreme weather events we've seen around the world, and we've also seen here in Ireland, this is when we're only at about 1.1, 1.2 degree warming. So each point we increase beyond that, it, it, it's going to get worse. 
So my view is that we are not seeing the action that the government took in the pandemic. That is the type of response that you would imagine could inform, uh, you know, mass retrofitting of people's houses. And I know there are policies to retrofit, but largely they're kind of neoliberal in the sense that they're up to individual householders to get a, a bit of a grant that covers a bit of it and then the rest of the house can be done up or, you know, they can get a, a grant for electric cars and so on. These just aren't gonna, ain't going to cut it. What we really need, in my view, and again, this is channeling my inner Marxist lentilism, is a working class environmentalism. You know, this cannot be, you know, um, it's not completely fair, but it's not completely inaccurate. What we have at the moment in the Republic, in, in, in particular, around green issues and the Green Party is like Fine Gael on bicycles. You know, the idea that somehow building more, you know, cycle paths, I'm a keen cyclist myself. These individualized responses are not what we need. We're in a state of a climate crisis. You know, the science is really clear. You know, if you're not shit scared after you read an intergovernmental panel on climate change report, uh, you're not reading it correctly. So we have the science that's getting increasingly confident and more strident to the extent that scientists can get more strident, telling us we're going the wrong direction. And then we're getting this kind of mealy-mouthed declaration of emergency and it's almost like just to finish. I mean, this is probably terribly um, facetious way to put it, but I'll put it this way anyway. It's almost like our politicians hear, you know, the scientists telling us things are getting worse. They can hear Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough and the young people striking for the climate, you know, and then they say, Alison, it's grand. Uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be all right. We find a technology. And there is an awful lot of wishful thinking around technological advances that are going to save us for this issue. In my view, there is no technological solution to this crisis. And indeed, there's no capitalist way out of this crisis. We are looking at an existential threat that requires a completely different way of living, producing, and indeed of, of perhaps even governing our society. We're coming to the end of a carbon-based capitalist system, in my view. Yeah, it's funny, the, the sort of expectancy that will just invent something that will sort of our problems out of and reminds me of an episode of the Simpsons where you know they go to the future for Marge's wedding or for Lisa's wedding and I think Marge at some stage turns a photograph into a cake and she says isn't it great now that science has invented magic <laughs> and I think that's sort of what we're hoping for um, and yeah like you know you mentioned I think it's interesting to compare like you mentioned Corbyn's propositions and how you know the immediate sort of backlash against that was it's too expensive it's too much of an overhaul it's impossible and yet as soon as covid comes along yeah we're trillions of pounds in debt but what are you going to do we just do it, so it can be done when the motivation is like the economy rather than helping poor people uh, uh, so so how could we, we could bail out banks in 2007 2008 to the tune of millions we could go and invade um illegally invade Iraq and occupy it in 2003. And that we, I don't mean, of course, the Republic as a, a still neutral country, although I think Leo Varadkar's doing his best to push Ireland into joining NATO. But it's that question, why is there always money for war and not for our health service? Uh, mm -hmm. Look at the millions that was quickly able to be provided to, to Ukraine in fighting uh, the Russians. But yet in the UK here, people say, hold on a minute, our NHS is starved. The issue in my view, is not that there's not a lack of money. The money can be there when the need is there. The pandemic forced even a right-wing government uh, such as the UK, or indeed a slightly right-wing government 
Maintain the Republic, it forced them to adopt socialist or quasi-socialist policies during the pandemic. And that should be a lesson that people should learn, that the state can act quickly. Populations can adapt in a crisis. You know, most people adapted quite well. You know, yes, it was an imposition. And I think historians in the context of the pandemic may look back at, at the early part of it and say it was the great toilet roll famine where we had people fighting over toilet rolls in supermarkets or whatever. But, but that was a minority experience. Most people did adapt. We looked out for each other. People realized that we wear masks and social distance, not to protect ourselves. Most of us were healthy enough that we weren't, if we did get it, you know, it was going to make a really bad flu. We were protecting the vulnerable. I think that was very admirable. And in many respects, the post-growth position is around trying to come up with a new proposition for measuring progress in society, not by the size of our GDP, not by the size of our armies, but by how we look after the most vulnerable, the old, the sick, the mentally you know, ill and so on. That's how you measure progress in the society. So it's a very different way of understanding what progress actually is. And another reason, just to go back in terms of something I didn't mention about why GDP and economic growth is a very flawed measure of uh, you know, an objective for our economy is that the unpaid work, which is largely uh, women, the unpaid work women do in our communities every day at home, cooking, cleaning, um, part-time psychological counselor to a male spouse who may be out working and so on, none of that gendered labor gets counted in GDP. So all that um, you know, volunteer activity that people get involved in, in GAA and community groups and so on, really important for the you know stitching together the community the fabric of our community never mind the the invaluable work that many women do in terms of rearing kids and looking after uh, old people often it falls to women that's work and yet it's not counted as work in our gdp figures and you may ask why and i'll tell you the reason why is that the the white rich men who invented gdp in the 1930s in, in uh, meetings in Canada, the US and London, including people like John Maynard Keynes, they decided that that was not to be counted as part of GDP. In other words, it's not an objective measurement. It's a, a normative judgment. Um, and people need to remember that, you know, economics is not a science. You know, it is often ideological. I mean, neoclassical economics, as I mentioned a moment ago, is largely capitalist economics, but yet it portrays itself in the media as somehow objective and neutral and value-free. It is anything but. And I do think that we need to have a much more mature debate in, in the media around you know, different ways of organizing the economy, different schools of understanding economics. I'm not saying people have to agree with the, the, you know, the version I'm proposing here, but at least to see that there are more types of, of understandings of the economy that we get in our uh, schooling system, education system, policy discussions, political discussions, and indeed the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think, um, yeah, as you say, like, yeah, it's often delivered economics as if like, oh, this is just how it works. It's just, you know, follow the money, follow the numbers. It's just, yeah, as if it is a science, as if it's a form of maths, but just with a currency symbol before the numbers. But it is inherently, ideological can massively be a form of propaganda even um, and I think like in terms of how it relates to ecology it often sets up an antagonism in class especially like you touched on that a little bit the fact that you know like there are grants available for like people who can afford to have a house to do up in the first place there are like 
like grants available if you've got you know 40 50 grand for an electric car but not if you could only afford to get the bus um and you and like you talked about yeah this bonus on the individual as opposed to corporations like you know like you feel guilty admitting to your friends that you haven't moved to shampoo and conditioner bars even though they're eight times the price or you know people who like buying fast fashion is not a choice for them they can't afford to buy anything else and you end up with this sort of resistance and resistance so I wonder how how is that to be addressed that it doesn't end up being that like green is for the poshos because yeah. that's sort of how it's been set up at the moment yeah but but just in the same way that my reference there to the unpaid work of women shows you that the climate uh, ecological you know, low carbon energy transition is not a gender free zone, neither is it a class free zone. There are massive issues of class and I would even say colonialism and the legacies of imperialism, that the way in which green politics in this neoliberal form, and I sadly think even the Green Party down south um, has this particular view, it's an individual choice. You can see it, you know, comes right from the EU with its market-based mechanisms for dealing with the climate issue. You have a, an emissions trading system. You have carbon markets where you basically monetize carbon and turn it into a commodity as a way of incentivizing decarbonization, right down then to it's your responsibility to recycle. It's not really curious that we've been socialized for decades, that it's our responsibility. Is it not the producer's responsibility to not produce the, the plastic crap in the first place? Why is it my responsibility then to do it at the other end? So I do think that we're, we're um, on the back foot or at least um, have to take into account, we've had 40 years of individualization, neoliberalization. You know, uh, in my view, a propaganda ideological campaign in our uh, institutions of learning from school, um, from the media, I would say from the bar room to the boardroom. We've been thoroughly neoliberalized in terms of often seeing that the market is the best way, innovation. Look at the heroes of the contemporary age, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and so on. These titans of, uh, of industry who think so much of the earth that they'll spend billions uh, in penis shaped spaceships to go up off into near Earth's atmosphere. Or in the case of Elon Musk, he thinks we're so fecked on the earth that he wants to go off to Mars and so on. And yet these are ser given serious consideration. So if my, if you were interviewing myself, or maybe not you, but somebody else, maybe mainstream media, if, if it was myself and, 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 and Elon Musk, and he was going on about SpaceX and colonizing Mars, people say, oh, well, we got to give it serious consideration. Whereas when I say, well, I'd like an eco-Marxist, you know, revolution and a change in the way in which we produce and, you know, consume, I'd be the one that would be the lunatic. Mm. And yet, so why is it that it's it's easier, as somebody once said, it's easier to believe in the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's actually easier. And I see this every year with my own students who, again, have been completely socialized into this way of thinking. They can't even think of an alternative economic system. And of course, the, 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 the go-to bogeyman or woman here is, ah, communism. You want to go to the USSR and all the horrible things that, that, uh, that, you know, that that system prevailed. That's not what the proposition is, is here. But it's a serious question for our culture, our society, our political debate, that we're not seriously considering that we do need to have alternatives on the table. Yes, let's kick them, kick the tires, you know, stress test them and see what, what works and what doesn't. 
But I'm absolutely convinced that this current system we have, this business as usual model of endless economic growth based upon carbon consumption, growing inequality and so on, it's coming to the end of its useful life. Now, in my view, what we should do is thank it for its service, because a lot of the good stuff we have in society was produced under that particular system. In the same way that I would never, ever portray a fossil fuel worker as a climate criminal, which I think too often the green and ecological movement and climate movement often does. We should thank those fossil fuel workers for everything they have done to help build our society. But we should be honest with them now and say, listen, the time is up now, boys and girls. We have to move to a different type of economy and energy. And that's the idea of this just transition, which I know has a lot of uh, rhetoric, but often very little behind it, particularly you look at the board and owner workers in the, in the Midlands, um, you know, who are now going to be unemployed because of the ESB have done. So to me, probably the biggest failure we have at the moment is imagination. You know, we have this default position. And by we, I mean, you know, ordinary people listen to the news, our policymakers, that somehow we can green business as usual, that we can basically, you know, find a technology to enable us to continue. Uh, and that's just not, is not going to be possible. We have to be honest with our people. And in fact, a lot of my work now as an academic is simply talking to the media when I get a chance. So I'm grateful for the opportunity um, today to community groups, to church groups, to anyone who listen to share my view that we need to be preparing for very different ways of life in the future. And I'm old enough now to know that I will not um, experience and witness um, the worst impacts if we don't get our act together. It'll be my two girls. And a lot of my work is actually motivated, honestly, by my concern for my kids. And I do wish there were more academics, really male academics like me. I'm a professor. We've got a position of privilege and some degree of power. Let's use it. But what's motivating me is not just my academic research and knowing that I've got the science and the knowledge behind me as best I can mobilize it. But as to say to people, I am really scared about my kids' future. And so should you. But you know what? We have a solution. You know, we have to honestly face the reality that we're coming to the end of the world as we know it. But that's okay. It's only the end of the world as we know it. It's a particular phase of human evolution. It's not the end of the world. Um, And that's the real, you know, fear I think now is that people are not, you know, beginning to grasp the multiple opportunities of creating a much more fairer, less gender, less class, unequal society but one that is very different to the, to the lives we now live. It's going to be based much more around things like certainly renewable energy, more local food. We're going to have to relocalize our economies an awful lot more because of the inherent often inequalities, but also the carbon impacts of, of globalization. So we are going to have to you know, start figuring out new ways of meeting our basic needs that aren't going to exploit people, planet or place. There I am with my alliteration again. <laughs> <laughs> it's good I mean it's it's good rhetoric for a reason um yeah I think it is such a good point to make because you know like I think the fear of the unknown of what we're going into should be outweighed by like the fear of what happens if we stick with the comfort zone and you know yeah as you mentioned the the c word the pokemon of communism and um, personally I think there are far worse societal models to end up in than one something close to the USSR but that's probably for a different podcast episode well, it, it, it's one you remind me my daughter gave me a book for Christmas 
And it's a, I'll give you a recommendation for, for you and your readers. It's called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And it's a kind of a, a rereading of the Eastern European experience in particular. And it's to correct that kind of folk memory that many of us were brought up with, that it was all unremittingly bad and grim and grey and people queuing up for bread. I'm not saying that some of those things didn't happen. But you know what? In terms of reproductive rights of women, in terms of women's equality and so on, mm. there was a lot of good things that happened under Eastern European communism. So anyway, you can read it there yourselves. Why women have better sex under socialism. Yeah, I've actually heard of that book. It's been, it's been on my long finger list for a while. Um, so I think the final point I'd like to touch on anyway, before we wrap up is, you know, we've mentioned just transition a few times. Um, and obviously a lot of our conversation is uh, confined to Ireland. We live in Ireland. That's what's most relevant for us, but we are a global North first world country. Um, and the argument ha- can and has been made um, that countries in dire, dire poverty have been pulled out and had billions of citizens pulled out of dire poverty by incredibly damaging and unsustainable industries. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how just transition would prevent those people just being absolutely left behind and falling back into those conditions again. I mean, there are, there are two dimensions of the just transition I'll, I'll quickly touch upon. One is kind of local and one is the global one that you mentioned. The local one is, is, I've already kind of touched upon it, is to say to particularly those sections of our economies that we can no longer continue with, the fossil fuel section. And again, it's an opportunity for me to say another important point about a post-growth position is that it does not mean every sector of the economy contracts. The argument is that so long as the macro economy is not transgressing, going beyond the planetary boundaries, the safe operating space for humanity, as Johan Rockström of the Stockholm Environment Industry in a very famous paper mentioned. So so long as the overall macro economy is staying below that safe level, we can have increases and decreases in different sectors. So we can have less nuclear weapons. Hey, I'd be for that. Maybe more kidney dialysis machines. Yeah, I'd be all for that. You know, maybe less, you know, Ferrari cars and more public transportation. So people need to understand that it's not about every part of the economy declining. You know, I've had that so many times and I thank you for not throwing it in my face as I've had over the years. Oh, you want to bring us back to the cave, you know, the caves and so on. That's not what the proposition is. It is about seeing which bits of our economy we need to grow and which bits then that we need to decline. And the just transition locally is about having an honest conversation with those workers and sectors of our economy, particularly on the fossil fuel, internal combustion engine. They had to be phased out over uh, you know, the next decade or so. And that's why, and it's where, for example, me living in the North here, as I have done for the past 20 odd years, there are lessons from conflict resolution that we're going to have to build into this transition because there will be winners and losers. There will be you know, uh, vehement opposition there will be um, those who feel their interests are threatened, particularly the fossil fuel industry and so on, who will fight back. You know, in this industry that I should remind people, particularly one particular company, BP, it earned £7 billion in three months in April, May and June this year against the backdrop of a cost of living crisis. So just be clear about recycling, 
individual responses or big corporations, well, there's one element of it. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be, you know, locally, we need to be able to engage honestly in the democratic dialogue with, with those sectors of our economy and engage in, for example, I'll give you an example here of Spain. Spain has now effectively retired all of their coal mines. And they did this through a combination of engaging with the trade unions, with the communities, obviously with the businesses. There was a lot of funding in terms of compensation, but they enabled workers in the coal mine who were coal miners to either retire at 55, have a retraining package and so on. And there's types of arguments that we need to kind of have to start understanding in terms of this just transition. Or if people are you know, interested in another European country engaging in this is Germany. Germany has set up at the federal level in a coal exit commission where they, they, they are figuring out how are they going to justly transition away from uh, their reliance on, on coal. At the global level, Roshin, you were mentioning, the reality is this, from a science-based point of view, if we are to have any hope in hell of staying below 1.5 degree global average heating, it means that we in the global north must allow development space for the global south. In other words, we must cede our current ecocidal, often you know, inequality producing growth model, that that has to come to an end in order to enable Africa and Asia and South America to come out of, of poverty. Our societies, you know, Ireland, North and South is incredibly rich. The problem is it's maldistributed. We don't need any more growth. What we need is redistribution, a recognition that there are so many parts of, uh, of, of economic productivity that currently aren't within our formal economic system, such as the unpaid work of women, the volunteering activity in our communities. A very different type of economy is, is possible. Uh, but the reality is, and, and the earth doesn't care for our politics. Science doesn't really give a monkeys about ideology. If we want to stay below, as I mentioned, 1.5 degree, which I think personally is probably gone now, we'd be lucky to stay below two degrees uh, global average heating. The only way we can do that while also lifting people out of poverty in the global south to allow them hopefully on a low carbon pathway to development is by the global north having a, you know, a carbon diet. You know, the reality is we know within societies and globally, roughly 10%, the top 10% wealthy people in any society and globally account for up to 50%, between 40 and 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So they're, they're the first section of our population we should be addressing. It's not the poor. It's certainly not the little old granny in Galway digging up a bit of turf to heat herself, because that's the only way she can she can do it. It is those wealthy in our society who are overconsuming. They are the ones that are flying to New York for you know their child's twenty first and so on. Um, and these we have to say are no longer possible. We don't want to deny people the ability to celebrate their child's twenty first, but to do so in a way that isn't going to cause costs on other people of engaging in ecocidal and suboptimal ways of, of doing this. So globally, it is, it's very, very clear. The only way we can stay to, to preserve a habitable world for our children and grandchildren, while also honoring the you know, a commitment to lift people out of poverty in the global south, is that we have to move beyond a growth trajectory in the global north. It's as simple as that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Village Magazine podcast. And thank you to Professor John Barry for joining us. 
If you'd like to get daily updates on what we're doing, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. And if you'd like to subscribe to our print magazine, you can do so on our website, villagemagazine.ie. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. When are you going to get a Northside Dublin accent? Recording progress! Right? <laughs>